Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would be building us up in the truth and conforming us more and more to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be with us, though we are sinful people, that we might hear and apply your word to our hearts, that you would be with me, though I am a sinful person, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So there's two ideas that I need us to understand before we start diving into these stories. Two ideas that are really important. And the first idea is that there are almost always errors in both directions. There are almost always errors in both directions when we think about how to live our lives. I was thinking about that. I was reading a little while back this really interesting and kind of hard article about this phenomena of exercise addiction that exists in our society. So in America, there is this error, which is being unhealthy, that many of us fall into. We, we are overweight. We eat too much unhealthy food. We do not exercise the way we should. So that's this error. But as some people fight back and react against that, there's this other thing that happens occasionally to people, which people that study it are now calling exercise addiction. And that's where people take the sort of ideas about health and exercise and they start doing them, but they reach this unhealthy extreme on the other side. So they might spend hours every day working out in a way that causes them to actually neglect other relationships and commitments. Oftentimes, one of the symptoms of it is that they'll continue working out even to an extent where it injures them. And even when they are injured, they'll keep going. There were these hard stories about people who would like go running even though they had like broken ankles or legs because they felt like they couldn't stop exercising. Oftentimes, exercise addiction also runs alongside eating disorders and struggles with food and unhealthy ways of avoiding food. And all of that is also an error. Martin Luther, when he describes the human condition, says that oftentimes human beings are like drunk peasants, which is to say that you're on one side of the horse and you think I need to be up on the horse, and so you try to get up and you just fall off on the other side and you're still not on the horse. And that is the sense that there are errors in both directions. And in Christianity, when we talk about obedience, we always have to wrestle with the reality that this is true for Christians as well. There is the error of lawlessness. And I think for many of us that go to church and would identify as Christians, this is the error we point to. Lawlessness, disobedience, not following God's commands, living in rebellion against him. And certainly in our world, there are plenty of people living in that error. But in scripture, we are also warned often about another error, which is legalism. Legalism is a harsh or graceless way of relating to God's law that is gets distorted and is in many ways exemplified by the Pharisees who we see in the gospel. And so there are two errors that we can fall into whenever we talk about Christian obedience. We need to not endorse lawlessness, but we also need to not endorse legalism. So that's the first big idea we need to get, that there are errors in both directions in many things, including how we think about the Christian life. And then the second big idea that we need to get before we look at this text is that the way that you fight one error is not with another error. The way that you fight one error is not with another error, but you fight it with the truth. 
You think about someone who maybe struggles with that exercise addiction that we mentioned. What that person needs, if you're trying to help them, is not McDonald's. It's not that they need to, instead of exercising and trying to eat healthy, that they need to just sit on the couch and stuff their face with potato chips all day long. You don't fight exercise addiction with unhealthy living. And in the same way, you do not fight uh, lawlessness with legalism or legalism with lawlessness. I think sometimes that what we think when we see someone living in kind of disobedience and rebellion, we we on some gut level think what they need is some amount of legalism. They need to be kind of beaten up or guilted or manipulated into trying to obey. And in the same way, when we encounter someone who is living really legalistically, I think sometimes we have this tendency to think that somehow lawlessness is what we need to give them a little bit of. And so we need to say, oh, just go sin a little and don't worry so much about obeying God. And that does not work. Instead, that person who wrestles with exercise addiction or that person who is living unhealthily, what they need is the truth. The truth about health and what a balanced, flourishing, healthy life actually looks like. And for people who wrestle in that tension of lawlessness and legalism, what they need is a picture of true obedience. They need a biblical image of what true obedience looks like in a way that challenges both errors at once. And that is what I think we see in these two stories. As we look at each of these stories, I think that we recognize three truths about obedience that help us understand how we're supposed to live as Christians following Jesus in a way that refuses both lawlessness and especially legalism. So let's look at those truths. The first truth is that God's law draws the boundaries. God's law is the thing that draws the boundaries around what we are called to do. You might not understand why that's an important thing to say, so let me show it to you in the text first. If you start in verse 1, it says, On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, to be clear about what's going on here. So Jesus' disciples, they're walking, they're probably journeying and hungry, and so they pluck some like sheaves of wheat or whatever, and they rub them in their hands to get the seeds out from the husks, and they're munching on them as a snack. And we should recognize, first of all, that there is no problem in Israelite law with doing that. It's not that they're stealing or something like that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, we see part of the kind of welfare system that God lays out for the poor in Israel is that Poor people or whoever are allowed to go into a field or into a vineyard and grab some fruit or grab some grain and eat it themselves in order to feed themselves. What they're not allowed to do, though, is collect it and take it home with them, which is a way of ensuring that people who wouldn't have enough would be able to eat, but also protecting the property of those farmers. And so this is completely legal, what the disciples are doing. Instead, the issue is about the Sabbath, as the Pharisees say. The Sabbath is the word the scripture uses to describe that one day in seven that we as God's people are called to set aside entirely for rest and worship. We read about it in Exodus 20. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
So that's the command for the Sabbath, and this is a part of God's law, and Jesus supports the Sabbath and keeps it. And we read actually earlier in Luke how he gathers, it's his custom to gather each week in worship on the Sabbath with God's people. But the question is, is what the disciples are doing here work? Because that's what the Pharisees are accusing them of, right? They're saying, you're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But, but where are they getting that? Because it is not at all clear from Exodus 20 that this sort of thing would be prohibited on the Sabbath. In fact, eating on the Sabbath is clearly allowed, and the work that it would take to, like, put food on your plate and lift the fork to your mouth, like, that doesn't count as Sabbath-breaking. And so the answer to why they would accuse this of being lawless is not because of something you can find in Scripture. Uh, scripture would absolutely give freedom for this sort of thing. But what it was that they had erected this set of rules and traditions around Scripture that, that they then equated with the law of God. And so they had all of these rules about what you were and weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. And as a consequence, that's what they accused the disciples of breaking. We see the same kind of thing in the second story. If you pick up in verse 6, It says that on another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So again, the question is the same. Is it against God's law to miraculously heal somebody on the Sabbath? I mean, this might surprise you, but there aren't actually a lot of regulations about when you can and can't do miracles in the Old Testament law because it was such an irregular thing. So certainly scripture is not regulating that. But again, it would have violated the rules that the Pharisees had erected around the law of God. Here's the principle that we need to understand. The first principle as we think about what true obedience looks like. It is that God's law and not anything else draws the boundaries around obedience and disobedience. God's law and not anything else draws the boundaries. Certainly this is a challenge to legalism because we are calling people to follow and live within the boundaries of God's law, I mean, to lawlessness, excuse me. But but what's really important here is to recognize this is meant as a challenge to legalism because one of the key characteristics of legalism is that it tends to create more rules than scripture actually creates. Let me try to explain how this process works. Here's what happens. Usually within the throes of legalism, we start with a biblical command that we want people to keep, which is good. That's a good thing. But then we recognize that there are situations or temptations or whatever that could lead some people to breaking that command. And that's not even bad. There's a lot of wisdom actually in recognizing those situations. But then what we do is we create a new rule based on that situation and not on God's original command. And we, we, we treat that as if it's equal with the command that God's word gives. And then we repeat that process with the new rule. And so we take that rule and treat it as a command and come up with more rules to enforce it. Let me try to give you an example of how that works. And I don't think this is one that's controversial to most of us, which is why I'm using it. But I remember I was a teenager visiting some colleges, and my parents really wanted me to visit this very conservative Christian college, which I did not end up attending. I ended up going to the University of Nebraska. Yeah, but but anyway, they had all these rules at this college. And I remember one of the rules was that they said it was wrong for students to ever engage in unchoreographed dancing, that... That you could not dance unless it was choreographed, like ballet or something. But if you were just making it up, that that was against the rules because that was wrong. 
Now, on the face of it, that seems kind of crazy, and certainly there's no biblical command that says that. In fact, there seems like there's some biblical cause to dance, but, but here's the thing. How did that rule come into existence? Some of you might know that's not unique to that college, that many conservative Christians in the 20th century, early 20th century, endorsed that sort of idea. Well, historically, here's what happened. In the 19th century, basically, a lot of Christians were very concerned about the reality that Scripture calls us not to engage in sexual immorality, that sex is a gift of God that's meant to strengthen and bless the covenant bonds of marriage, and that for Christians to engage in it outside of that is destructive. And that's a true biblical command. We should agree that we as Christians should seek to avoid sexual immorality. But then they said, okay, there's these things in our culture called dance halls. And in dance halls, they were places where you would go have some drinks and dance with some pretty members of the opposite sex. And they noticed, again rightly, that oftentimes you would fall into sexual sin if you were spending a lot of time hanging out at dance halls. And that's still not untrue, right? But that's a, a principle of wisdom. It would be wise if you're seeking to avoid sexual immorality, especially as a young person, to not frequent dance halls. But what they did is then they made a new rule about that. Basically, they said, if you are a Christian, you cannot go to dance halls. So that's the new command, and that's certainly not something that Scripture says. And then they repeat the process. They say, well, if we don't want these people going to dance halls, how are we going to keep them from doing that? Well, you know, one of the one of the things that causes people to go to dance halls is dancing. And so let's make a rule that says that dancing is forbidden because dancing might lead you to frequent places where dancing happens and places where dancing happens might well lead you to sexual immorality. And so that became a new rule. That process is exactly what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath as well. It was good that they wanted people to keep the Sabbath and to not work on the Sabbath. But what they did is they said, well, we don't want people to work. How do we keep people from working? Well, like harvesting grain is working, so let's come up with a bunch of rules that make it impossible for you to harvest grain. They, they said actually that if you ground any grain, even enough to make a pile the size of a fig, that you were breaking the Sabbath. And they do that with other things too. They laid out like, you can't walk any further than this distance. You can't spit in the dirt because that could make mud and making mud is a part of brick making. They, they created all these rules around Sabbath making and then treated those as new commands of God. That is a thing that Christians absolutely still do in our world on different issues. And that thing is a problem which often leads to legalism because it goes beyond the law of God. When we say that God's law sets the boundaries for obedience, that means that we should stay within its boundaries but it also means that it is not our job to create new commands for people. And this really matters for a couple of important reasons. One of them is because we might say, well, what's the harm in these man-made rules? But part of the answer is that God does not promise his Holy Spirit will keep, help us keep man-made rules. We have this beautiful promise that the Holy Spirit will help us as we seek to follow Jesus and live for him, that he's at work sanctifying us. But that promise does not apply to things that are not a part of the law of God. And so oftentimes people end up trying to keep commands that God didn't give and not having the supernatural strength that God offers us in trying to keep them. A second issue is that those man-made rules often cause people to fight the wrong battles and then not fight the right ones. 
What I mean is this, it's that when we create these artificial boundaries, when people transgress those boundaries, they feel like they're already in sin, and so at that point they don't feel like there's anything keeping them from sinning further, right? That if you end up at a dance hall, you're, if you're already in sin and breaking God's commands, then why not just go all the way is kind of the question. And you see that kind of reasoning happen oftentimes when people are living under legalistic rules. And the third issue is that it makes us neglect real sins as we focus on invented ones. It makes us neglect things that God would really call sinful because we're focusing on rules that we've made instead. Human beings only have a certain amount of bandwidth for obedience to God. And what often happens in churches that like to create rules is that it is those rules and not God's commands that are the focus of the church, which is why in many churches, including some that I grew up around, I would hear lots of sermons that, that would go on at great length about issues that scripture does not directly address, while sins like gossip and greed and pride and divisiveness were rampant in those churches and never challenged. All of which is to say that we need to be committed to keeping God's law and committed to not going beyond it when we think about obedience. Now let me just say one last thing about all of that, because some of you might be struggling with a specific piece of that. All of that does not mean that there is no place for wisdom when we think about how to obey God. What we noted about, like, the fact that dance halls may well cause temptation for many people who went into them, that's a real thing, and it's a good thing for those people to notice. It's just that it's important not to equate that with the command of God. So, for example, if you are an alcoholic, if you struggle with the sin of drunkenness, it is a good idea for you to not go hang out at bars because that's obviously a place where you're going to be confronted with these temptations that you're really going to struggle with. And I don't mean what I just said to say, like, oh, just don't, you know, don't worry about things like that. But what is important to recognize is that a principle like that cannot be equated with the law of God. You ought not bind other brothers and sisters who don't have the struggles that you have. And importantly, you should recognize what really matters. And so even if in some moment of weakness you, you walk into a bar, that does not mean that the battle is lost, right? Just, just order a glass of water. So that's the first principle, that God's law sets the boundaries. The second principle we see in these stories is that love determines the direction. Love determines the direction of our obedience. Let me try to show you again. Look first in verse 3 in the first story. The disciples have eaten grain from the field, and Jesus answers the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Now there's some debate about what Jesus is saying here, and that's because there's some debate about the story in the Old Testament and what's going on. But what happens is, David has been anointed the king of Israel and is God's rightful king, but Saul, who is currently the king of Israel and is not happy with that, is trying to kill him, and David and his men are on the run, and they've been traveling for a long time, and they haven't eaten in a long time, and they come to the, the tabernacle, and what David ends up doing, and the priests end up agreeing to, is that David takes the bread, which is in the holy place in the tabernacle, and he eats it and feeds it to his men. And if you were with us back when we preached through Exodus, you know that bread is supposed to be reserved for the priests. 
Now, what's going on in that story? The, the reason that it's a little complicated is because part of the answer has to do with the fact that David, as Israel's true king, occupies this special place in relationship to God and to the temple. And, um, and that's probably going to tie into what Jesus says in a minute about being Lord of the Sabbath. But part of what's going on, and the part that I think that we should recognize, is that Jesus is also pointing out that there are often tensions in our priorities as we're seeking to follow Jesus. There are things in tension. In this case, there is this tension between the call for this bread to be preserved in the holy place and between the reality that God's appointed king needed help and sustenance and that it would not have been good to let these people starve, and that when those points of tension exist, it is love that is supposed to determine the way that we navigate them. We're going to say more about that in a minute because that can raise some questions. But if you look at the second story, you see the principle of love more clearly. Pick up in verse 8. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he basically says, You are asking the wrong question. Your question is about the rules and the details of the rules and the minutia of what it means to follow them. The question you should be asking is, on this day that is set aside for the Lord, is it right to do good or to do evil? Should you try to heal this guy or should you let him still suffer under the curse of this broken world? Love is supposed to determine the direction of your obedience. Now, I want to explain this carefully because we, we cannot detach this truth from the first one that we said. There are two things that are true at once. One is that God's law determines the boundaries of Christian obedience. And two is that love determines the direction of our obedience, the way in which we keep the law and how and why we keep it. And we need to have both of those at once because there are two errors you can fall into. Again, some people in the name of love they try to remove the boundaries of the law. They say, man, it just doesn't feel loving to walk in obedience or call people to obedience to God's commands, and so we're just going to kind of ignore some of these commands in the name of love. And that is a problem because God is the one who defines what love actually means. Without God's law providing the boundaries, our idea of what love looks like can get really messed up by sin. I mean, I know this, and if, if you have ever had to, to deal with an addict, you know this, that a person who is caught in the throes of addiction to alcohol or to drugs or to something like that, they will say, if you loved me, you would give me the thing that I want. And they will really feel it down in their hearts. And you will feel cruel in the moment by, by trying to restrain them and keeping from indulging in their addiction. But the truth is that the thing that they want and the thing that they think is loving is the thing that's destroying them. Love has to operate within the boundaries of what is truly good for people, not simply what we feel. So on the one hand, love still has to operate within the boundaries of the law. But on the other hand, love is the thing that determines how and why we follow and teach God's commands. And that is just as important to recognize, if not more so. Love determines how we obey God's law which means that as we seek to live as Christians, we ought to be displaying the character of Jesus Christ. We ought to be living in a way that is humble and gentle, 
that is quick to forgive and gracious and kind, that is not hypocritical, that is patient, and that prioritizes other people in the ways that we move through the world. Love determines how we are called to obey God's law. And love determines why we obey God's law. Our motivation must be true love for another person. And I mean true from the heart. It's easy to say like I'm saying this because I love them, but it is so easy to dress up with that self-righteousness or hatred or a sort of harsh pride that really stems from an uncertainty about the world. Love determines how and why we keep the law of God. And if love is not present when we keep the law of God, it is not a good thing. Again, that puts us in the position of the Pharisees. Legalism, even though it theoretically cares about the commands of God, is actually a destructive way to obey. It's a destructive way to obey. And we need to ensure that we are not walking in that. True obedience is not ultimately about simply avoiding evil. It does include that, but true obedience is not simply about avoiding evil, but ultimately about doing good, as Jesus stresses in the second story. It's about bringing life and healing to the world. Love determines the direction of obedience. And then the third truth, the third truth about obedience is that the Lord is the foundation. The Lord is the foundation for our obedience. Again, let me show you in each of these stories. First of all, in verse 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? Is Jesus saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, so my disciples can do what I want? That might be how you read it first, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Again, he cares about God's law and perfectly obeys it. Instead, I think what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, you care about the Sabbath. And man, that's good. The Sabbath is important. But I'm the one who made the Sabbath. I'm the one who, who rested, who created the whole world and then rested on the seventh day. I am the, the Messiah and your king and God made flesh. And you care more about whether eating some wheat that you pluck off the stalks on this day, you care more about that than you care about knowing and following me. The same thing happens in the second story. If you look at verse 10, it says, And after looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So you got a picture. It says this guy has a withered hand, which probably means it's shrunken or maybe deformed or something. And so he's got this, this withered hand, and Jesus says, Stretch it out. And then he instantaneously and visibly heals it. Right there, as everyone watches, the, the muscles grow and the skin stretches and the fingers extend and the guy's hand is fully and visibly healed. How should someone respond to that? I mean, how would you respond? How should you respond in that moment? With, with awe? Maybe with a little bit of fear? Look at how the Pharisees respond. It says, They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees actually missed the Messiah because of their commitment to the law. Their response to his miraculous healing of this man was to try to figure out how to kill him. And the reason for that was because they were so focused on God's law that they had lost sight of the Lord who gave it. Christian obedience is only true obedience when it exists in relationship with God. Christian obedience is only true obedience when it exists within relationship with God. 
I talk often with people, or sometimes with people in marriages that are struggling, and the reason at root is because their marriage has become about nothing but duty. They have all of these duties that they perform for each other. They have to pay the mortgage, and they have to raise the kids, and they have to go through the motions of keeping a home and sustaining life together and making a paycheck. And, and those are all parts of marriage, but that's all that they have. They have lost the sense of affection for the other person, the sense of delight in this person that they're married to, the sense of wonder and discovery as they learn more about this person. And all that they have, that all that the relationship comes down to is this kind of grim duty and determination. And when you point that out to those people, they will often say something like, well, isn't that better than the alternative? By which they mean, isn't it better, you know, than to like bail on our kids and get divorced and have everything fall apart? And the answer to that is, I guess, but also no. It's I guess in the sense that it is true that if the only two options are legalism and lawlessness, that on the whole, I prefer legalism, right? If the choice is between someone being a Pharisee and a serial killer, that, that I guess I would choose the Pharisee. But the answer is no, because those are not the only alternatives available to you. There is a truly better way, a good way to undertake marriage. And that is to ask yourself, to go back and ask yourself, why are you doing these duties in the first place? What, what on earth possessed you to commit your life to doing these things for this person? And the answer to that for almost all of us was an experience of relationship and love, an experience of that delight in the other person, that wonder of discovering who they were and learning about them, of enjoying the time that they spent with that person. That's the reason they undertook it in that marriage. And that's the thing they need to rediscover in order for that duty to become delight. Christian obedience is always meant to flow out of a relationship with God. We are meant to love him, to uh, delight in him, to, to wonder at him and discover things about him and exist in joy with him and even fear him in a kind of appropriate way. But all of that is an expression of a relationship where we're tasting his goodness and walking with him and talking to him and hearing from him and living as a part of his family. Out of all of that, then we obey. And in that context, the duties of Christianity become delights. Somewhere along the way, some of us have lost that relationship, at least that sense of it. Or some of us maybe have never experienced it. And if that is you, the thing that I want you to understand this morning is that the ultimate way to address both disobedience and legalism in your life, the ultimate way to grow in true obedience always rests in returning to that relationship you have with God. Investing the time in the things that draw you closer to him, in, in, in coming to know him better. Out of that, duty becomes delight. So what is the solution to lawlessness? And what is the solution to legalism? The ultimate answer in scripture is experiencing the love and presence of God. That is the, the, the source of, from which true obedience springs. And that, as you do that, will actually counteract both errors at the same time. As we close, I found myself reflecting on a lot of these themes recently. And so I'm just going to reflect personally for a minute and then talk about us applying it more broadly. 
Um, but man, I was on vacation last week and I just had some time to think about the craziness of the last four or five months with coronavirus and with political tribalism and with all of the social distancing and all of this rough things and just reflected first on the way it kind of sucks the joy out of a lot of what I'm supposed to do in ministry and what I love doing. I think a lot of pastors are going to be in danger in a year or two of ministry burnout because they are um, they're feeling that that weight and they're not getting life from the things that normally gave them life. And I was reflecting on my own heart and the ways that I need to safeguard myself from that. And as I thought about all of that, the thing I reflected on is that a lot of the reason that becomes destructive, a lot of why I think pastors burn out in general and might after this season, is because what tends to happen in those hard times is that we really resort to a sort of legalism in ministry. We, we try to just put our heads down and do our duty and force our way through and get done what needs to be done. And as I reflected on that and reflected on how to fight against that and was working on this sermon, I came away with three takeaways for myself and my ministry. Three takeaways. The first one, as I thought about what I need to live as, is to say that it is, that it is important for me to not shoulder duties beyond what Scripture gives to not shoulder duties beyond what Scripture gives, which is to say to let God's love set the boundaries. Uh, I think a lot of pastors fall into this trap where they try to be excellent at everything. They try to be the perfect uh, communicator and PR person and organizational leader and counselor and advertiser and friend for every member of their congregation. And it's not wrong to do some of those things. And I mean, I try to do some of those things as I'm gifted and able, but to recognize that the duties that I am ultimately responsible for are to preach the word, to pray, to love people, and to shepherd them. That biblically, those are the set of things that I am called to do, and that it is important for me to focus on those things and recognize that those are the things that I'm accountable for, not all the other stuff. Secondly, I was struck by the need to not lose sight of love for, well, for you all in, in my case, which is to say that all of those duties of ministry, the obedience that I'm called to have is meant to exist within the context of loving people, of knowing them and desiring to help and bless them. And especially in this weird season where I don't get to see you all face to face and things like visitation are really limited and I'm not able to do as much of that. Man, I struggle sometimes with losing sight of that, but it's important to do that. And then the third and most important thing that I was reflecting on for myself is the need for me to focus first and foremost on my relationship with God. To say that there's a lot of stuff that is to be done and a lot of stuff that has to be figured out in this season, but the source of life and joy in all of that ultimately rests in spending time with God and listening to him, and hearing his word, and just being with him, and delighting in the gospel of his grace and the, the love that he has for me. And that as I do that, that is the source of strength and life in an ongoing way in ministry. And I lay all of that out, not because I, I know that you all aren't pastors, but I lay all of that out because I hope that as you see how I'm trying to apply that to my life, you can maybe begin to ask those same questions of your life. Let me give you those three principles as questions for you to ask yourself. Three questions. The first one, have you bound yourself to rules and obligations beyond what God's word commands? Have you bound yourself to rules and obligations that go beyond the law of God? 
Are there things that you feel guilty for that God does not command you to, to seek to do? Are there ways that you're trying to perform that go beyond what God calls you to perform? Look through your life for those things and recognize, yeah, you're going to be doing other stuff. It's good to try to do extra things and be wise and all of that. But at the end of the day, it is, it is the law that determines what God calls us to do. And you don't have to shoulder more of a burden than it gives. Second question, have you lost sight of the call to love? A great deal of what makes obedience life-giving is that it exists within a context of loving other people. And I think it is really easy for us to lose sight of that calling to love people when we think about biblical obedience, to focus so much on rules and obligations that we lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, it is these human beings around me that I am seeking to bless and give life to that are the things I'm supposed to be giving my life to. And three, the third question, are you experiencing the life-giving presence of God? Are you experiencing the life-giving presence of God? That is the most important question. And if the answer to that is no, then you need to do whatever is necessary to make that happen. If if you're like, I, I, I am discouraged and despairing, you need to talk to somebody and wrestle through that so that you can experience that life-giving presence. If you are too busy to experience the presence of God, then you are too busy. If you've never experienced it, then this is the time for you to recognize that, look, while God is calling you to obey and follow after Jesus and seek to live in a Christ-like way, all of that is secondary to his calling for you to know and love him and be loved by him. And you need to make that your first priority and experience that for yourself. And the reason those questions are so crucial is because as we answer those three questions, and as we start to live into them, we find our lives both drawn away from lawlessness and disobedience, but also safeguarded from legalism and harshness. And what we are given instead is a place of growing in true obedience, filled with love and joy. Let's make that our goal. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us, as your people, that you would be conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, to grow in true obedience. Turn us from the lawlessness that this world often encourages us in. Show us the goodness of your ways and help us to delight in and walk in them. Turn us from the legalism that religion so often engenders and give us hearts that are full of love and delight in you. Father, I pray that you would so work in us as your people that you might then work through us to bring your blessing and life to the world. Father, that you would bring sustenance and healing to those in need, that you would bring light and hope to those who live in darkness through us as we follow you. Father, be conforming us more and more each day to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Be sanctifying us by your Holy Spirit. Grow us in the new identity we have in you and in the joy of union with Jesus Christ. And so make us more and more into your disciples and people of the cross. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now, friends, join us in the prayer that Jesus Christ taught us to pray. 